Well, good morning, Oak Mountain. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them and turn to Jeremiah 29. That's where we're going to be at today. Jeremiah 29. The title of the sermon today is Context is King. In seminary, had a professor dearly loved named Dr. J. Squar. In every single class for several years, he would start the class this way. He would say, Shalom, class. We would say, Shalom, Jay. He would say, Start with the Bible. We'd say, Not with the commentary. And he would say, context, we'd say, is king. Every class never failed. He beat it into our heads. Context is king. So I'm sorry that you don't have Bob this morning. We're not going to be in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be in this passage today. And I purposely chose this passage because of several reasons. The first one is just getting a good context and a robust biblical theology of Scripture. So we, we love to take verses and extract them and get good sound bites and make them sound like the way we want to. We're, we're great at taking verses out of context, especially these days. Um, how about the verse in uh, uh, Philippians 4.13? We know that one. This, that's the athlete verse, right? That's on Steph Curry's shoes. That was made for the shoes, right? No, no. Paul said, I'm content whether I have much or I have little. I'm content in all these things, and I know that God supplies me. That's the context of that verse. Or how about Psalm 46? We know that one that says, be still and know that I am the Lord. That's not the whole verse, though. The rest of the verse actually goes on to say, and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The context of that verse is saying that the the nations are warring against God and saying, you need to be still and know that I am God over all nations. So there's context for us. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says, A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. Man, I could take that verse out of context. Money's the answer for everything. Okay. All right, my next one, I kind of debated whether to show this or not. So when you see it, I'm probably not going to want to keep it on the screen too long. But there is a rapper that many of y'all know of named Lil Nas X. You know, the annoying song, Old Town Road, that all of you have heard, it's, it's bad. But he actually created an unauthorized version of a Nike shoe that was a satanic version of the shoe, trying to make money. And so I'll show you real quick the shoe. This is the shoe he's trying to sell. And he has a verse on there, Luke ten eighteen. I guarantee you that's out of context. Luke ten eighteen says, and I saw Satan fall out of the heavens like lightning. Makes it sound like Satan is actually pretty powerful. But context is king here. The context of that verse actually is Jesus telling the disciples that they could cast out demons and they're reveling over the fact that they can do that. And then Jesus says, don't rejoice over the fact that you have power over the spirits, even Satan here, but, re- but rejoice over the fact that your names are written in heaven. That's the context of Luke 10, not this sort of stuff. So context is king. So that's part of what I want to talk about today. Jeremiah 29, we know verse 11, right? It's on bumper stickers. You might have a tattoo of that. It might have been your life verse in the yearbook. I don't know. It could be in lots of things, and that's okay. That verse is great. It's a positive verse. has a lot of good meaning to it, but sometimes we might take it a little bit out of context. So my hope today as we go through chapter 29 is that you will get a fuller, richer, robust understanding of what, what the Lord is saying when he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, and to give you a hope in the future. See, there's so much more meaning to that 
that it's so, so good. So I want us to get into that day. But before I do, the, the other reason I wanted to share this, or go into this passage today, is because just personally for me and for our family, it's been a hard year. We've experienced death, we've experienced illnesses, we've experienced lots of things. It's been really hard in a lot of ways. And not in a victim way, but just sometimes things are hard. Sometimes you go through hard seasons. And sometimes the Lord does that. God is no less good when he does those things. And when he does those things, it perks our ears up to ask, Lord, what are you doing? Are you really that good? I don't know if you're like me, but I want to ask that question. I want to know, God, are you really that good? But I come to a verse like verse 11, and it's almost like the sugar rather than the meat and potatoes. It sounds good because when I'm in pain or I'm feeling anxiety or frustration or stress, I'm looking, I'm I'm trying to squirm. I'm looking for a way out. And I can read this verse as it's my escape plan. God's going to say, don't worry, it won't last too long. I'll get you out of this. But guess what? This chapter, the Israelites, the exiles, they were not getting out of it anytime soon. So we need to read it in its context to understand what verse 11 might really be saying. When I read it, I don't want to read into it and think, oh, that's what God wants from me. How can he help me find a way out? I, 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 I repent of that. I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm acknowledging that when I'm praying and, uh, and aware of who God is. But under that, the deeper question that I'm asking, and I bet a lot of you are as well, is it's not how can I get out of pain. It's really wrestling with the question of, are you really good? Are you really going to come through for me, God? Are you really there for me? Are you that committed to me? I feel the pain. I've experienced the hardship. Can you really, really be that good? So if you're like me and asking that question, I think the Israelites, understandably, would want to ask that question as well. Let me give you a little context before we read it here. In this passage, we're going to read... The Israelites were in exile. They had sinned so much. One of God's consequences to the Israelites was to be in exile. So Babylon came in and conquered them. And they took out a lot of important people and took them back to to Babylon. It's much like with the Russian-Ukrainian war right now. If Russia were to win and take a lot of Ukrainians back to Russia and make them live there. But there were false prophets that were rising up among the exiles. And they were saying, hey guys, it's just two years God's given me a word, and it's just two years, and we'll be out of this. So if you just kind of hang on, we'll be okay. Babylon will be overthrown. We go back to Israel. It's all good. Just hang on a minute. But Jeremiah, who did not go with them to Babylon in exile, was still in Jerusalem. He caught word of what was being said, and so he wrote a letter to them, which is the content of chapter 29. In this letter, he wrote to those exiles. He said, wait a minute. I'm the one that's been with the Lord. And the Lord has told me very clearly, it is not two years. It's 70 years. So here's the Israelites. They've got a choice to make. Two years, 70 years. Two years, I can make that. I can make it work. I see the escape hatch. 70 years, I'm not going anywhere. I may not make it in this life back to Israel. This this might be it for me. I don't know. So the Israelites were faced with a choice. And in that, under that, I think there's still the question of, is God really that good? If I I stay here 70 years, is he for me? Is he committed to me? 
in this distant land, feeling a little separated from him in some ways. So with that, let's read Jeremiah 29 together. So please stand out of reverence for God's word. And let's read together the first 14 verses. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Just historical context. and know these people are real. That's why that's there. Now, here's the content of the letter. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will rescue, I'm sorry, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. May God bless the preaching and the hearing of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. And this is God's word, and he gave it to us so that we would know that his heart is so, so good towards us. So let us remember that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in this place like exiles questioning if you're really good. We can know from your word over and over and over again that you are so good and you are faithful and you are not like man that you would lie or change your mind. You are steadfast and consistent and never changing. And for that, we trust you. We pray that you continue to build our faith in you and your goodness towards us. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, I have good news for you. I got two points today. Okay? Hopefully I can still go kind of fast and be on schedule. We do have communion, though, so just bear with me. So, first point. How do we find comfort in God's goodness towards us. The first point is we can find comfort in the fact that God never changes his mind. That's the first way we can find comfort from this passage. God is not changing his mind at all. I hope that you can see once we get past all those complicated names and we get to the content of the letter, he gives, us some, it gives the, the exile some very clear things to do. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat of it. 
marry, have babies, have grandbabies, carry on, uh, just continue to increase there and to multiply. And I, I hope in some ways you're aware enough of Scripture that you hear something there that actually goes back to Genesis 1. I hope that you can hear these echoes of the Garden of Eden, that when Jesus created Adam and Eve, the man and woman, he gave them this garden to live in and to cultivate and to grow and to expand over the face of the earth. That was the original design for all of us, for mankind, because he loves us and he gave gave us this beautiful creation. And we see this happening. We see what we call the great mandate that it says to rule and subdue the earth and be fruitful and multiply. That that's God's design for his people. That's what he wants for us as human beings. And we see that here, to to be fruitful, to multiply where they are. Now, do you see how strange this could be? That here's exiles living in a foreign land that they're unfamiliar with, different language, different customs. It's not their home. It's not comfortable. It's not familiar. They've lost so much. And God's saying it's still the exact same thing that it was in Genesis 1. That's unreal to think about that God's plan is unchanging. It's unwavering. But yet there's a security in that. To know that God is our Father still longs for and desires the same things to happen in our life, despite the circumstances that are happening. He still is after the same things. We can also see that he talks about these false prophets the same way that uh, Satan was talked about in the garden. That he's a deceiver, he's lying, it's a lie. I didn't send him. And we see these echoes from Eden that's happening here in this passage. You can also see, as we carry on in this and the other verses there, there's a lot of times that the word welfare is used here. Now, welfare can be a packed meaning in today's time, but that welfare, the word welfare in the Hebrew there is actually shalom. A lot of you know what shalom is, but in case you don't, shalom is such a packed, rich word. It's hard to even describe it fully, but it's, it's the way things are supposed to be. It's the longing of your heart for things to be the way they're supposed to be, the completeness, the wholeness, the flourishing of this world and life and relationships. That's what we had in Genesis 1, and yet God is restoring that shalom over time. It's interesting the way that he talks about shalom. He's talking about that their shalom is wrapped up in the shalom of the city where they live. It's very interesting. But it makes sense in the context context of all of scripture that that's what God is after God is after the shalom going forth that where we had shalom in Genesis 1 that it was wrecked and it was ruined is being restored where we go as believers and he's using us as his people as his children and it's an amazing thing to consider there this is why Juan Vasquez and Tom Patton have helped to uh, build relationships with so many ministry partners across Birmingham and the city and opportunities for us to step into to serve because we know that our shalom is wrapped up in the shalom of the city of Birmingham. And so it's encouraging to be a part of rural divinity and so many other ministries and to be able to step into that and be a part of flourishing begin to happen where there isn't flourishing. Shalom to break into places where there isn't shalom. This is why it's exciting to celebrate that Homewood Community Church was sent out from here to be a, a a place of shalom where there isn't shalom. While there's been other church plants that have been sent out from here to bring about shalom in this city, in this place. And we get to be a part of that as his people. 
And also, too, coming up in about two weeks, we've got two short-term teams that are going overseas to Athens, Greece, in such a strategic part of the world that's longing for shalom. And they get to go there and ask the question, how might shalom be brought into these places and into these people's lives and get to be a part of that redemption? So may the Lord bless those trips that are coming up. But that is what God wants for us as we get to pray and intercede for our city and for the nations. That is his design. He has not changed his mind. It reminds me of someone named Corrie Ten Boom. Some of you may be familiar with. She lived during, the, during World War II and her family would hide Jews so they would not be taken to concentration camps. They're able to help hundreds of Jews escape during World War II, but eventually they were found out and their family, the Ten Booms, were taken away into a concentration camp too. And there her dad and her sister died. Corey miraculously made it out, and over time God used her to, to be able to share the gospel with so many people and to be a, an example and a salt and a light in so many places, wrote a lot of books, spoke in a lot of places. And one of the, thing, one of the regular examples that she would talk about was this illustration, and I've got a picture of it here for us, and I think it's appropriate for this time, that she would hold up a cloth, and she would hold up the right, right side of it there and see all these scraggly strings, and you can't tell what it is. What is this? It just looks like a bunch of gnarled up uh, strings and threads put together, wondering what it is. And she's talking about the Grand Weaver and how the loom works. And if you're on the underside of the loom... It just looks like this. It's messy. You don't know how it all fits together. The exiles could see being in exile a lot like this. Why, God? Two years sounds so much better than 70. Why would it be 70 years? But if we could flip it over and see the top side of God's view of the loom, what is being woven together, we would see a beautiful crown, as Corey Ten Boom talks about. And it's a matter of perspective, right? That context is king, that God has not changed his mind. He is committed to his people. Regardless of address or circumstances, God is committed to his people. He's committed to you. And where in the circumstances it seems like all these gnarled up threads put together, not knowing what the answer is, we can trust that in God's goodness from his perspective, he is weaving something together that's actually not even just independent of just you alone, but even in, in context of relationship. That he's using you. He's using other people in your life. And he will reveal himself. So it's amazing to think about that. She also has a, a poem that she reads as she shares this. I think it's appropriate as well. It's called The Weaver. It says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly. Will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why? The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. So I ask you, do you see in Scripture from Genesis to Jeremiah to today that God is weaving a beautiful tapestry that you're included in and even those hard things that you're going through or other people are going through, the unmet expectations, things don't go as planned, the anxieties, all the things that we feel and we experience, some are short, some are long seasons, but all that is a tapestry to know that God is working all these things out 
It's the same plan that he's had. There's such comfort we can find in that and know that he is good. It's incredible to think about this. So what, what situations might you need to reflect on that are causing you anxiety and stress and burden? To take time and think and consider how you're only seeing the underside of that loom and taking the time to consider God's perspective of what he might be doing. And then also in his purposes, how might your life continually be built more on God's eternal purposes rather than just what we see here and now to escape pain, to medicate ourselves, to find the way out? So I hope that you can see that God's heart's good towards you in the first point. And our second point today is finding comfort that God has promised more than you can imagine. God has promised so much for you and me, it is unbelievable as, just as believers. It's incredible to consider. So all we've seen so far we've talked about is these commands, these things that these people are supposed, the exiles are supposed to do. But he shifts gears in verse 10, and for the next five verses, all he does is talk about promises over and over and over again. Not just one promise. We single out verse 11, but for five verses straight here, he is promising something. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. God is that good to continually come back and show us what he is faithful to do because he is faithful. So before I read it, I just want to point this out. Some of you have gone through our Gospel Waltz journey, which is part of our discipleship we do here at Oak Mountain. If you haven't, I encourage you to do so. It's a great opportunity to dig deeper into the gospel and the knowledge of God's grace and do that in the context of community. But if you have been through it, either way, there's a, we talk about the gospel waltz in terms of there's a three-step dance that we do with the Lord as believers, which is repent, believe, and fight. And specifically in the belief step, there's two parts to that gospel waltz journey that we talk about. And that is, when we talk about believing something, we talk about we affirm it and we want to appropriate it. I think it's important here to consider that as we go through all these promises. As I, as I read through these, that you can in your mind and your heart affirm and appropriate belief that these things are true. So when I say affirm, what I mean by that, affirming just means to express and give commitment to what you're hearing, that it's true. That you're knowing that it's true and you're committed to it because you know that it's true. And then secondly, appropriation would just mean that you're taking hold of it, you're taking possession of For yourself, you're receiving it, and there's a supernatural power by the cross and the Holy Spirit that works in the act of receiving that. So in that belief step, let's consider these verses here. In verse 10, I will fulfill my promise and bring you back. That word promise actually means good word. Again, God is good. Verse 11, my thoughts and my plans. He has plans. Two chapters later, verse 17 in chapter 31, he says, There is a hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your, people sh- your children shall come back to their own country. That's, that's the hope in the future. That's the context there. Your hope in your future is that you will come back to your homeland. <clears throat> verse 12, You will call and come and pray, and I will hear you. I will hear you in prayer. What a great, incredible promise that is. As we pray, God hears us. It reminds me of Psalm 91, verses 14 through 16. It says, Behold, he holds fast. This is God speaking here. Behold, he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. And when he calls to me, I will answer him. 
I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him. I will honor him. I will, I'm sorry, with long life, I will satisfy him and I will show him my salvation. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. God is telling you that you can trust him. He is that good. He's full of promises, chocked full. These verses are rich with promises of what God is saying he does for his people. And we can affirm and appropriate that, that God is good for us. You know, Daniel, the book of Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel, lived during this time. And he probably read Jeremiah 29 because he was in exile as well. When he's with King Nebuchadnezzar in reading that, I think he actually applied this very well. In Daniel um, 9, he has a prayer that he prays that is a great way to apply this. Just a great model for prayer and then just how to pray with our whole heart. This is the way Daniel prayed in Daniel 9. He said, Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps, command, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled and turned aside from your commandments and your rules. And goes on to say, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to, the pleas for, to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Don't delay for your sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by my name. What a great prayer. There's Daniel applying Jeremiah 29 and how to pray with our whole heart to seek him and we will find him. Verse 13 goes on to talk about the other promise. When we seek him with all our heart, not only does he answer, but we'll find him. He can be found. You can see God. You can know God personally in a relationship. This is the difference between religion and relationship. You don't pray so that God God will love you. You pray because he does love you and you have a relationship with him. There's a vast difference in prayer. That's why we come with our whole heart to God. Because he will reveal reveal himself to us. And he goes on in 14 and reiterates that again. I will be found. It sounds a lot like Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 2. It says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that is not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not as good, following their own devices. And he goes on in the last verse here and saying, I will restore your fortunes and I will gather you and bring you back. Let me be clear. When he says restore fortunes, he's not talking material wealth. Again, we can take that verse out of context as well. But the word restore, uh, restore fortunes just means to restore you from captivity. That is the context that he's talking about here. That is how good the Lord is. So let me finish off the context for us. We talked about Genesis 1, the echoes of Eden in Jeremiah 29. If we move on to the New Testament... We get to Acts 13, 
we see the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul calls himself the Apostle to the Gentiles. And why does he call himself that? Because he went outside of Israel and he traveled around sharing the gospel outside of Israel. And do you know where he went? Do you know where those missionary journeys went to? They went to places where these exiles were scattered. And then when he got to those cities, do you know specifically what locations in the city he went to? He went to synagogues. Now, why are there synagogues outside of Israel? Hmm. Maybe they stayed there long enough not just to plant houses and live in them. Maybe they didn't stay there long enough just to plant gardens and eat the fruit. Maybe they didn't stay there long enough just to have multiple generations. But maybe they stayed there long enough because their hearts longed to connect with God and they built synagogues. They built synagogues and they're reading half of our scripture right here. Wanting to know who God is. So here comes Paul on the scene, and he goes into the synagogues. You talk about rolling out the welcome mat for the gospel. That's what God did. That 70 years that seemingly was almost arbitrary to spend that long there actually teed up the gospel. It teed it up to roll it out. That when Paul comes on the scene hundreds of years later, he says, let me tell you about Isaiah 53. Let me tell you about this suffering servant. Let me read Psalm 22. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I know that he was publicly portrayed as crucified. He was dead and buried for three days and he rose again. That's what it's talking about here. And Acts 13 goes on to say that the gospel began to spread throughout the region. It's amazing. It's amazing. Context is really king here. This seemingly just long, hard, slogging out life, distant from your home, had purpose and meaning even beyond that time. It's incredible to think about that. That just blows my mind that God's infinite wisdom is weaving together that beautiful tapestry to know that even the things that you're going through, because you are his people, you are his child, he is committed to you, he is for you, and he is good. Even the hard things, he is working and restoring you into his image. You are an image bearer of him. You are an agent of shalom in places where there is no shalom. And God uses you to do that because his plan has not changed. And these promises in, Genesis, in Jeremiah 29 are for you because you're his child. He's not promising that your hardship may end tomorrow. It may last a long, long time. But I'll tell you this. He's no less good. He's a good God. He loves you. And he's committed to you. So with that, we're going to move to a time of worship. I'm sorry, to a time of communion. The elders want to make their way to the back. In communion, I think this is an appropriate and fitting time to think about how we can respond to what we're hearing from the scripture. In Hebrews 4, we see Jesus described as a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses. In the context here, it says that he sympathized with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way and yet without sin. And in my being vulnerable with you, I, I am, in my weakness, 
I do give over to sin, and I don't believe God's good for me a lot of times. I don't think he's going to come through for me. I doubt it, like, like Paul, uh, Peter did walking on the water. I want to, but there's times I question it. And so this table is an appropriate time. If you're like me and you question whether God's good towards you, let's be reminded that he literally gave us the most tangible expression of that goodness towards you. He gave up his son and he broke his body and he poured out his blood for you and for me. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So let me pray for these elements and we will take them together. Father, we pray for today. We pray for this time, Father, that you would help our hearts to be focused on you. Thank you that you're a high priest that can sympathize with the fact that we are weak and we are needy. Father, we are hungry and thirsty and desperate for you to come through for us and to be strong on our behalf. Father, this time, while we take communion, being the, the sacrament that it is, that it's a sign and a seal of our engrafting into, our co- into the covenant of grace that you've made with us and our union with you, Father, I pray that you would so separate these elements, that you would make them holy for us and that you would reveal yourself. Your presence is here. Pour yourself out generously. We thank you for these elements. We pray that you would be found, that we would see your face, that we would behold you in your sanctuary. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.